Welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. It's my pleasure this episode to introduce Dr. Simon Thornley, biostatistician, public health physician and epidemiologist at the University of Auckland, and returning to the show, Professor Grant Schofield, who is a professor of public health at the Auckland University of Technology. Now, both Simon and Grant have been part of a working group which has been proposing a more moderated response to the COVID pandemic in New Zealand. They've received a lot of criticism for this, and I for one have been very disheartened by the personal attacks that have been leveled against them, and also the personal attacks that have been leveled against opposing academics by members of the public. But there have also been worrying personal attacks leveled by other academics. These ad hominem attacks, in my opinion, have no place in academic debate. There's also been a worrying trend towards censorship of material coming out from academics who maybe dissent with the popular opinion. And that's very important that we're aware of that because freedom of the press is critical in a democracy and perhaps as importantly, maybe even more importantly, freedom of academics and freedom of researchers to express opinions within their areas is also critically important. So in the interest of public debate, I'd like to introduce to you again Dr. Simon Thornley and Professor Grant Schofield. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ quit This song don't give a damn You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it This song ain't arrogant If you don't try and buy it Or if your radio denies it Don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV Or what spots hot, I forgot I ain't mad at evolution for revolution, get up, enough is enough, hey, somebody stand up, come on, get up, stand up, get up, stand up, get up, stand up, Hi team, welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast, uh, it's my pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Simon Thornley and Professor Grant Schofield. Um, just a little bit of a background here. I don't feel as if I have a dog in this particular fight per se, um, but I do think that it's really important that we have some intelligent debate and discussion about where we need to head with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and, and the, the COVID disease pandemic and how we handle that going forward, um, because there are obviously long-term implications as well as the short-term implications. I will disclose uh, my, my interest, though, with Grant and Simon. Uh, they were my supervisors, along with Karen Zinn and Mickey Willardin, on my master's and doctoral journey. And so we've published a number of papers together. Um, but like I say, this is a, a fairly different thing, and I really wanted to get these guys on to explain their rationale and reasons for their projected plan B uh, for COVID response in New Zealand. So Simon is a public health physician, biostatistician and epidemiologist currently teaching at the University of Auckland and Grant is a professor of public health at Auckland University of Technology. So welcome guys. Thanks Cliff, thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. Hey, hey Cliff, thanks. So I, I want to start off by, by talking a little bit about your background, Simon because you've been criticized a lot in the last few days for being you know, outside of your lane, outside of your scope. Um, but, but I would have thought as a biostatistician and epidemiologist, someone who works for the good of public health and someone who comes from a, a medical background as well, that you would be 
fairly well placed to be crunching crunching some numbers and giving some opinion on this topic. How have you responded to that criticism in the last few days? Yeah, well, I've been questioned a lot about whether I should be making any um, statements on the COVID situation. I mean, I think the reality here is that this is probably the most momentous uh, epidemiologically guided policy in New Zealand's history. And so uh, I've been working on uh, COVID up until very recently. I've been working in public health and I've seen the response. And I thought that the lockdown was an overreaction and I couldn't live with myself <laughs> unless I said something. Um, we've had a lot of expert voices in this field, but really, I, I believe that the magnitude of the policy is well beyond one particular specialty. Sure, epidemiology is very central, but the policy encompasses effects on health, the economy, education, um, unemployment. Uh, it is very hard to say that any one person should be excluded from this discussion, I think. You know, I, one thing I wanted to bring up as well, and this is just my opinion here, is that I, I feel like having looked a lot at the public commentary that's going on, a lot of the people who are commenting on COVID and who are being lauded for their commentary are not necessarily within scope either. You know, we have, um, well, maybe not technically in scope, but as you say, it requires an interdisciplinary approach, but we have engineers, we have, um, you know, economists, we have psychologists, we have all sorts of people who are, are having their voice as well. And it seems like they're not coming in for the same criticism unless they have a dissenting viewpoint. Yes, well, I think Grant and I have seen a, um, you know, a, a situation where uh, dissenting voices have been squashed. And that certainly happened with some of our stories. Uh, for example, um, an op-ed that I put in Stuff was a leading story for about an hour, and then it, the link disappeared from the main page on Stuff. So there's been extraordinary efforts to shut us down, which I've never encountered in my uh, career. And I've managed to get a few things out in the media in my time and uh, never encountered such a dramatic shutdown as with this situation. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you guys on this morning is that that, that shocks me that, um, you know, that there were articles taken down, you know, by, by academics. This is not people projecting falsehoods per se. This is people having their opinion based on their academic experience. To me, that feels very much like academic censorship, even if, you know, people don't agree with you or even if I don't agree with you, I would always, um, you know, take a Voltairean viewpoint, I guess, and that I, I want the debate out there. So where did that guidance come from? Was that something that the, the newspaper or the media decided to do of their own, off their own bat? Or was that something that um, was recommended by, by local or central government? Well, we don't know. 
um, exactly how this happened. All we can say is that it happened. Um, we can only speculate that there may have been some government influence. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's hard to know, but it wasn't. I was first alerted to this, not with our work, but to someone else, a guy called Alex Davis wrote a paper, an article of paper a couple of weeks ago, and it was there, then it wasn't. And it was the first uh, piece of dis public dissent against things. And then uh, when we started to raise scientific debate, the same things happened. Uh, it hasn't consistently happened, but it has happened. So, okay, so we, we, we can, I guess, we, we can agree that there has been some degree of censorship, whether it came from government or, or not. Uh, my position would be that if it's a company making a decision to, to not publish something or to unpublish something, that's one thing. If there is some sort of interference from the government, that's really worrying um, from my point of view, because I believe strongly in academic freedom. Let's move on from that, because I think a lot of people are really interested in, in your response and why. So you've suggested in your plan B a much more moderate response than has been suggested by the government or that, that we're currently undergoing. What would this involve and why do you think this is necessary in comparison to what we're doing now? Well, first of all, I think the lockdown was an overreaction. Uh, if you look at the real threats posed by the virus, you see that um, risk of death or case fatality rate, to use technical language, is not as high as was initially projected. For example, at, in New Zealand at the moment, uh, we have a case fatality rate of 0.6% um, compared to what was initially uh, put out by the WHO of 3.4%. And, and those are uh, totally different scenarios in terms of severity from an infectious disease. Uh, what we've also seen is an unquestioning approach to labeling COVID-19 deaths as from the infection. Uh, so uh, some very uh, elderly, frail people who um, would have a very high likelihood of dying of other conditions have been unquestioningly labelled as COVID deaths. We haven't had the information released to be able to assess whether those deaths were in fact related to a COVID-like illness or whether they were related to an underlying condition and they simply tested positive beforehand. So in, in the latest study that I've read in The Lancet, I think it came out about two weeks or, or, or less ago, they were suggesting that the, the revised case fatality rate would be around what you said, 0.6 uh, to 0.7% overall based on the latest data. Now that's still very high compared to influenza, right? Even a fairly bad seasonal flu, um, you know, or, or flu season, we would be probably looking at around 0.3%. Is that correct? Yeah, I've seen in the past 0.1 to about 0.5 uh, for very severe influenza. Yeah, but the I think I think the other thing there though um, is 
in many ways, this is one of the reasons I've become so interested in this is when you're interested in numbers and you see daily numbers and you see a fixation on numbers, then you need to understand how real both the numerator and the denominator of those numbers are. And when you start to look into that um, more carefully in this case, then the case for accuracy is not strong. But obviously people died, that's not in dispute. Um, Simon's talked about the cause of death, so there is some discussion about that. Um, that's the numerator, but the denominator, in my opinion, the number of cases and uh, number of people infected with uh, this virus uh, could be anywhere that is a long way above those estimates. And there's about four reasons for that, at least in this country. Um, one is that we have limited testing and have had limited testing and we've asked and we've only tested symptomatic people. Uh, and we know from studies in particularly Iceland and Italy that there is likely to be large numbers of asymptomatic people. We know that the test using uh, real-time PCR identifying RNA virus fragments is highly accurate at identifying cases. So if you're identified as being positive, you almost certainly do have that. But at the other side of that, it trades that for low sensitivity. So there's not great data on that, but for similar viruses, sensitivity runs between 0.5 and 0.7. In other words, there's a large number of false negatives, people who actually do have the virus, but are told that they don't. Uh, and just the degree of population sampling is low. And then because we've been going for several weeks, uh, we don't know who's already had it. And so, so the test, when you start to think about those numbers and the, uh, the case fatalities under those conditions, then the estimates that even at say 0.6 are likely to be highly inflated. to get and the is coming through and I think at uh, Stanford uh, doing quite extensive population sampling now and seeing uh, much lower estimates but those data will come through in the next week or so and that'll tell a different story. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I think that's the good role for me to take. Then I can understand a lot more about this. Because like I say, I, I'm just a dumb nutritionist, right? I don't know anything about this stuff. If we don't have enough data now and we don't really understand exactly what's going on, wouldn't that be a rationale for, for having um, greater caution? Or do you think that it is simply overextended in terms of the cautious approach? Well, I think there's, I mean, we can focus on the case fatality rate and grants raise and issues there, but we can also look at overall uh, what other data is coming out. And we see that in some heavily affected countries, uh, there's been no rise in overall mortality, which suggests that this virus is not an added burden to the health sector. It's, it's part of what has been circulating and what tends to cause seasonal illnesses. We know that coronaviruses have been 
uh, in that category, they have uh, they cause influenza-like illnesses, and they've caused devastation in rest homes, and they've caused people to end up in ICU. There's been case series of ICU ICU cases. So it's a matter of trying to work out what's the overall threat of this virus. Yes, we have seen. Uh, hospitals overwhelmed, intensive care units overwhelmed in very population dense parts of the world. Some of those areas have had uh, similar events uh, in past winters uh, with seasonal influenza, for example, uh, particularly in Northern Italy. So, it's a matter of getting a perspective on the virus. It's, it's obviously not as uh, virulent as SARS, for example, which is another coronavirus that we're quite familiar with. Um, MERS is another one. So we've got to try and... Does this not provide a greater burden on the health system, though, because it has a sort of that that intersection of lower case fatality rates, high transmittability, and, and therefore that's one of the big dangers is that hospital surge? Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, however, looking at the evidence which is emerging from uh, a lot of the decision making up until this point has been based on, based on forecast models, uh, which have basically taken a situation in Wuhan or a situation um, in another densely populated country and, trans and extrapolated those findings to New Zealand. And what we've seen uh, particularly in Australia, is that uh, their per capita rate of infection is lower than New Zealand, and yet they've had a much more relaxed lockdown. They, they've had 90% of their economy continue uh, compared to New Zealand, which has had roughly 50%. And that which I think, Simon, I think that's a good point that you're bringing up. And I think, Cliff, that's the other answer to you being devil's advocate here is like, we might as well better safe than sorry. Um, and I, I would agree with that if there was uh, no harm from the strength yeah. of the intervention. And so this is something that people have been highly critical of, particularly Simon and I uh, on is like, well, look, you, you, by taking a lesser approach, there be maybe higher mortality from I think we've we've lost lost Grant Grant just for yeah, a, for a I short think... moment. I'm sure he'll be back when the connection gets a bit better. Well, I think that's an issue is um, this is. Uh, the major consequences to locking down a country. We've seen Spain's unemployment figures double every week, which for somebody who grew up in a 
household affected by unemployment. It's it's a major major uh, issue, um, and it has health effects. We know that suicide, for example, increases the rates increase by a factor of three. Uh, during times of mass unemployment. So we're... And from I mean, what I've seen, our suicide rates, even outside of a recession, are, are very high anyway. They're nearly as high as rates in the US during the Great Depression. I could be wrong there, but uh, from a perfunctory looking at the data, that's what it looks like. So if our rates were to go up exponentially, that's that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big thing, right? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, there's... New Zealand is a land of small business owners, and uh, many of them don't have the financial resources to last in a prolonged uh, lockdown state. Uh, and that scares me. Uh, the, the health effects from the mental health, the suicides, the uh, deep deviation of the health sector into exclusively focusing on COVID and abandoning other treatments like uh, cancer treatment, for example. Uh, that's another factor which frightens me when you see uh, some unrealistic aims put out by the government, for example, elimination of the virus. Uh, we have never, to my knowledge, been able to eliminate a virus, a respiratory virus such as this one that has a high rate of asymptomatic infection, uh, widespread in the community. Uh, to me, it's like trying to hunt a needle in a haystack. Uh, in fact, multiple needles and multiple haystacks. And it's simply not achievable, but it's being thrust into the limelight as something that New Zealand uh, should aim for. And I think it's a pipe dream. And, and so, Cliff, the important thing over the top of that is that there's, besides the sort of suppression of scientific debate around this, is this accusation to go back to that of, of us throwing the yeah. oldies under the bus and not caring about lives and trading money for lives. And um, the great irony of that is the exact opposite of that um, because all lives matter. They're all real lives with real families. And the goal in public health, of course, is to do the most benefit with the least harm, with the tools that you have and a one dimensional saving of COVID lives at the expense of everything else including other lives, is deeply unethical. And suppressing the scientific debate around that uh, is astonishingly uh, unethical and not what we do in the scientific Yeah, and no, I've seen posted a lot, um, you know, research that was published from memory back in about 2009, looking at uh, mortality resulting from the Great Depression, with the conclusion being mortality actually dropped during the Great Depression. However, um, I, I've subsequently looked at other research come out since then, which has looked at um, 
you know, not just a broad brushstroke across the United States, but looking at various areas and how mortality was impacted for different diseases and disorders and things. And it had quite a different conclusion that recession had a fairly big effect, obviously, on suicide, but also on diabetes and, and cancer and heart disease and things like that. What's your opinion ar around the overall long-term health impact of a sustained recession? Well, there's plenty of evidence that it increases hospitalizations, that it increases mental health um, issues and admissions, and it also increases suicides. Uh, there's profound effects from a depression, um, from my reading of things. And how do you model that? against the the risk now it seems like there are so so many unknowns and it requires such a massive interdisciplinary approach that it, it sort of baffles me because like i say i'm just a dumb nutritionist so what would i know but it, it seems very complex how do you go about as an epidemiologist biostatistician beginning to model the effects of one thing versus another well i think that's a very interesting question cliff i i think that really it comes down to judgment we need to look at on one side we've got the virus and its health effects and its effect on the population overall mortality um, case fatality rate on the other side we have health effects from uh, switching off the economy for prolonged periods of time um, so I think we, we can use numbers here, and I've seen some work in terms of economists trying to estimate. In one paper, for example, estimated that from the lockdown, the benefits would be about the equivalent of 56 times what we normally buy a life year with. So a life year in New Zealand is roughly valued at about 40,000, 50,000 New Zealand dollars. And the estimating the costs of the lockdown and the potential benefits, uh, the bottom line was that this is a very bad buy in terms of overall health gain achieved. Um, I didn't look into the details of the study, and there's obviously various assumptions around it, but that squares with what my judgment here is looking at both sides of the equation. And I think um, just, just from my point of view, it's very important for people to realize that when people, economists and, and others are talking about the, the sort of value attributed to life, they're not saying we buy life or we buy death it's really that there needs to be some quantifiable metric by which we evaluate what one intervention is is worth basically in terms of the lives saved versus another am i correct in assuming that yeah well we do have a metric called quality adjusted life years where uh epidemiologists and health economists try and put a number on something which is very hard to value and a dollar figure on something which is is very slippery and intangible. Um, yeah. And so there's all sorts of problems with it. I tend not to 
delve into it too much because you know of all the, this controversy around trying to attach dollar values to life years um, but for some things you can do that relatively straightforwardly for example it costs about a hundred thousand dollars a year to keep um, a person in end-stage renal failure on dialysis and without that treatment they would die uh, there are some treatments around which uh, like dialysis in which it's fairly clear-cut if you don't provide the treatment um, a patient would die so it, it's there's, there's lots of uncertainties around the evidence for the intervention that you're suggesting um, how much that life is valued but there is a whole area in which people do this work Um, and in fact, Simon, um, someone's just done that, a, a fellow in, uh, economist in Wellington, for what it's worth, has done that, and he's estimating that we're spending about 56 times more per quality adjusted life year for COVID-19 treatments than we would under normal maximum circumstances in the health system. Um, and there's so many assumptions here, it's really, as Simon said, it's really hard to know what to make of that, but it does give you some sort of ballpark view that that it may not be easy. So the, to sort of, to, to, to summarize a little bit back to the, the, the basics, you don't believe that we can eliminate this. Therefore, we, we really need to be focusing on, on flattening the curve in, in the truest sense rather than this elimination strategy. I wanted to ask in light of that, with the maybe the Swedish or the Australian models, although particularly Sweden doesn't look all that good now in comparison to its neighbours. What does that actually mean, in your opinion, in the medium to long term? Are, are they simply sacrificing more, let, let's say, mortality now for lesser in the future, um, assuming we can get some sort of herd immunity? And I don't know if that's actually the case. Or, or have they taken the wrong track? Oh, well, Sweden's an interesting case because they've, um, taken a relatively liberal approach to their social distancing and they haven't done a full lockdown. In fact, Stockholm has been described as the most uh, free city in Europe at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, there was some questions about the sanity of that approach and um, people were looking closely at what's happening in Sweden and for a time they were stretched in terms of their hospital resources and they set up a field hospital. But the latest news is that that hospital is closing and that the that there's um, adequate capacity in the hospital sector and that there actually cases are reducing and uh, that they're able to soldier on pretty well. I've seen some evidence that Denmark, which has had comparatively a more um, aggressive approach, is regretting its lockdown now. That's been stated in a, in a newspaper, I think a German newspaper. So... Um, is that because we're ex we would expect to have the same overall mortality over a longer time frame? just not so condensed? I'm just trying to understand how, how this would progress. Yeah, well, there is such a thing as what they call harvesting when you look at overall mortality. And 
in some European countries, there has been a spike above expected levels of uh, increased mortality rate. Um, but often that is compensated soon after by a decline because uh, that group that died would have died uh, pretty soon uh, in the near future. So, so that certainly can happen. Only time will tell whether that is in fact the case. Um, there's some work by uh, Professor David Spiegelhalter where he tried to compare the case fatality rate from COVID to annual fatality rates uh, averaged over the whole population. And what he found was that the case fatality rate from COVID was roughly the same as your age uh, adjusted annual fatality rate. So in effect, he described <coughs> it as squeezing a year's worth of mortality into two weeks. Now, I looked at that, Simon, and I thought that that was relatively, his estimations were actually relatively conservative because in looking at actuary tables, it seemed like there was actually a higher um, odds of dying, I guess, at particular ages, you know, far higher than um, the, the fatality rate of, of COVID. Did, did he take a conservative view there or is the information that I was looking at just wrong? <laughs> um, well, I think there's there's some questions there. I haven't cross-checked it with other estimates, but um, the COVID, I think it probably is an overestimate because the COVID patients don't represent an average uh, population in that age group. They're right. generally people who have multiple comorbidities. So if you were estimating their annual risk of death, it would be much higher than an average person in the population. So yeah. he himself said he thought it was overestimated uh, okay. in terms of, so yeah. But it was for the British population. So uh, there is some subtleties there which make it a little bit difficult to um, to to compare um, and, and so it'd take a bit of work to to do an accurate comparison with New Zealand data, for example. Yeah. Okay, but I'll I might come back to, to some questions around that in just a little bit, but I, I wanted to make sure we had enough time for, uh, I'll, I'll address this to you, Grant, to address some questions that have come through um, for, for me from Facebook and other social. Now, some people have um, said along with this idea that you mentioned before of, of money over people, which you've addressed, that this seems like a, and I quote, cynical attention grab. And the sort of evidence that people are giving for that is that there was a PR company involved with this. Now, I just want to, to obviously be completely transparent and give you a chance to address uh, whether this is a cynical attention grab. You're obviously going to say no, um, but also why you, you might have engaged some people to um, to, to, to run some PR for you. Uh, yeah, I don't think we um, necessarily engaged them. It's just a group of uh, interested people. One guy happens to do that as a living. Um, and so there's no one's engaging anyone. It's just a bunch of people who know each other and one guy can help get uh, media out there. And I think 
to be fair, right. that's, that's been, so these that's, are just, these are just interested parties. Yeah. Um, okay. So so um, I don't think anyone's doing that. I think my biggest concern uh, has been that when I first I was first drawn into this when Simon wrote his article, and he was he was damned by authority by uh, some social media from other scientists who were already engaged in this going, uh, this guy's unqualified to talk. Everything he says should be ignored. Um, it's all rubbish with no, uh, no engagement with the facts. And I reacted quite strongly to that on social media, to that scientist and said that was unacceptable behavior and that's not the scientific process, which was met by similar sorts of things. I thought, well, we need to engage in that. Um, yeah. So I started writing. Um, a number of other people started writing, and so then there was a collection of uh, some professors uh, and other health professionals around the country who were interested in from a variety of disciplines. So that's how that group, uh, Plan B group, came together. So I don't think there's anything uh, nefarious in that, other than there's a guy that can actually help us get some um, of this out in a coordinated way and volunteered their time. Um, I guess the the other thing about this. Uh, in my view, to arrive at the best outcome when there's ambiguous data on both sides, then a range of multidisciplinary views and debate where there's not consensus um, is the only plausible scenario for making good progress. Um, and when people aren't considering things like, for example, fun, one thing to me that I think um, really struck home this morning, just got one of these... Uh, emails from my bank, you know, bank with the BNZ and that Tony Alexander, who's the economist there, sends out emails to clients of the BNZ. And it's very obvious that if you're well enough off, then this is a massive opportunity to increase your net worth as you know, house prices change and stocks go up and down. And if you know what you're doing, you've got the ways. Um, yes. this, this recession will do nothing but massively perpetuate the existing social inequalities that we have. Yep. which are some of the main drivers of health, but not just of, of, of physical health, but overall well-being and, and um, engagement in life um, will be, those inequalities will be perpetuated by that. And so you can see that I get that information, but there's a whole bunch of people who aren't getting that information will have no resource to do anything with that information. They'll just be worse off. And yeah. so a, a balanced engagement and I think that's what I felt I had to offer. It's like I'm in public health and, okay, fair enough. I'm not an infectious disease person, but I certainly face the day-to-day -day reality and our work of dealing with the resource trade-offs. Simon mentioned renal dialysis for uh, end-stage renal disease related say, di to diabetes, 100,000. And that's not counting all the other complications and health costs. That's just that single cost. Okay, and it's life-saving for that individual. But how do you trade that versus, okay, well, we could do uh, 200... Uh, nutrition intervention programs uh, and, and that might be effective for a hundred of those people and actually for, for 10 of them it might prevent end-stage renal failure. Uh, those are decisions that are made every day in health and healthcare and they don't always go our way and we're, we're often pleading for money that doesn't exist because it's been used up elsewhere and yeah. so there's a constant argument about quality and quantity of life and and how those resources get spent. You know, do you, do you, and this is why we don't fund some breast cancer drugs, for example, because it might be just better to fix, you know, five hundred thousand kids' teeth or something. It's 
they're difficult decisions, but they need debating, especially in this time. Yeah. Uh, this is the biggest thing I've ever seen happen in the world um, and in the world of health and in this country. And I think it needs um, people to debate. And in a situation where there's a propaganda machine preventing that debate, I don't think um, having, having some mates who, are, um, who help with the media releases is nefarious, frankly. So one thing that was mentioned in that respect was that, and, and I don't. This is something I don't agree with because I know how things work a little bit more than probably the average behind the scenes. But one criticism that was levelled against you guys was that why put this out to the public? Why not just work with with government or with the you know the the Ministry of Health and other organisations to to work on this behind the scenes? Simon, your response? My, my response to that is um, I, I feel very strongly that scientific debate um, should be done in public. I think um, that's treating the public like they're stupid. They are interested parties. Um, many um, have a lot to offer. I don't yeah. think that's confusing. I think that's just on first principles. I would say that. I've said that in the diet and uh, lifestyle work we do all the time because the same criticisms have been leveled. Uh, yeah, these aren't. I know about those criticisms, Grant. Yeah, this isn't the secret. Yeah, well, you do. You've been involved with so many of them. This isn't the secret service. It's not some um, secret or something that you need the the old boys' library card for. Um, these I think are it, understandable public issues. It also speaks to um, probably a lack of awareness of how how science works. I mean, most of our scientific discoveries don't come from government per se. They might have taxpayer funding. They might be funded through, you know, by the government indirectly, but they're coming from universities. They're coming from academics. They're coming from researchers who are, who are performing research. And, you know, obviously before that are creating hypotheses. And really, I guess that's what's occurring here is that we, we need to have those hypotheses created. We need to try and test those where we can. But also I, I think we need to have, as you suggested, this robust academic debate. And I was really, I, it made me quite sad to see academics coming out and engaging in log logical fallacies, which I think have no place in academic debate. You, you don't, you know, level ad hominems at people, regardless of how thinly veiled they are. That, that doesn't help, you know, D debate the issue, don't try and attack the person you know, and all the others that followed on from that, all these various logical fallacies, it's certainly not helping because we need an inter interdisciplinary approach to this because it's not about microbes in a Petri dish and it's not just about epidemiology or econ economics or behavioral economics. It's all of those things, you know, washed in together. Yeah, absolutely. I. I mean, I've tried to offer some advice through the official channels. Um, I haven't, it was largely shouted down. Um, and so, you know, everyone in New Zealand has a stake in this. Uh, there's no one that doesn't. And I think as part of a healthy democracy, we can debate these issues in the public. I don't see a reason why they should be hidden behind closed doors, do you? I think it's worrying when debate is, is has to be hidden and it can't be public. And I think it's um, in, increasingly worrying if there is censorship of 
academics because you know what any of us do irrespective of our field is to, to to try and perform that scientific process and part of that in my opinion is the debate and the feedback and the sort of the the you know the editorial that's what we do in journals right we have them peer reviewed but we're also open to rebuttal and this is something that i think needs needs to occur um one thing that i, I want to bring the conversation back to a little bit and I think both of you can probably speak to this with your sort of personal background, Simon and, and Grant, with your work in, in public health, both of your work in public health over a long time. One thing that really worried me initially that I don't think has been talked about enough is that increase in wealth divide that can occur from a long-term recession. You know, as you suggested, Grant, there will be people who will be profiting from this. And I think that um, that's not necessarily being talked about because it's posed as, well, people want to get back to work and, you know, get back into business. And therefore, those people are the ones who want to profit. Whereas from my point of view, those with uh, exceptional wealth right now will be profiting because of the lockdown. And there will be an increase in the wealth divide because of that. Yeah, I agree with that. That's that's an astonishing uh, insight actually that isn't discussed. Um, I, I, actually, someone should write more about that. Um, you could even do that, Cliff. Um, but the <laughs> I'll leave that to the economists. I think. Well, no, but I think that's that's just everyone entering into that public debate about about the society because we we a society will be our world will not return to the same world that we left behind um, when we fell off the end of a cliff a month ago. Um, it will be a different society, both globally and uh, here in New Zealand. And the question is, what are we going to debate and choose? And I think what you're raising there is is such an important issue. Uh, it's interesting that Sweden, one of the most equal countries in the world, will remain quite equal. Um, and the United States, one of the most unequal countries in the world, will be probably even more unequal. Um, yeah. And you know, where, which direction is New Zealand? heading in and what does that mean for the health and well-being of the people of these countries it's just not it's not an agenda item it's agenda items at the moment is save COVID lives at all costs and i can understand why that's happened but and it, it, you know one sense if you're going into the sort of lockdown that we've had you need a high degree of population compliance if say only two percent of people just said stuff this we're civilly disobedient we're not doing anything you say it, it would be completely unenforceable so you can understand why you go with sort of fear-based, uh, united front propaganda model. Um, I would probably do the same if I wanted that degree of population compliance. It's just that how do you exit that in a meaningful way, given you've created that level of fear? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that, and this is, you know, coming from a position of not being an expert in this field, but I, I think that we actually, we probably did the right thing in terms of locking down. I know you guys will disagree with me. On the other hand, I think that we need to return as as quickly as is safe to more normal activities for the good of everybody, for long-term health, um, to not increase the wealth divide. Uh, and I think along with that, another thing that people aren't really talking about is how do we change systems now, recognizing that there will be an economic recession that will result from this? There, there will be now. I mean, there's no doubt about that. So what does that mean in terms of either living wages or increased minimum wages, universal basic income? Um, you know, do, do we look at those things now? Because I think we, we kind of have to. It's hard to know where those uh, 
funds that come from it's not a bottomless pit and we've thrown billions and we're going to see a gdp we could see a 50 percent decrease in gdp uh, you've got to get them from somewhere so there's yeah. always costs to actions um, and uh, whilst money and health and mortality are not good uh, bedfellows especially discussing them together uh, there's a brutal reality uh, to that and I don't know um, how those would come together but I certainly support those just in general principles on any day of the week or month or year or whatever crisis we're in those should be discussions anyway doesn't sound very like very much like a privileged position Grant. <laughs> yeah well that's the other thing it's like you go where well, you're um, privileged uh, white male First of all, I'm not that white, but the um, you know, there's some things you just can't do anything about. It's like you know, short of going down to the workshop with a saw, I can't do anything about my um, uh, biology. Um, so, does, does, that, does that mean me? you shouldn't have a place in the debate? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't what do you what do you do about that? You can't. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's a blunt tool, you know, and I. I I recognize my privilege as a white middle-aged male. I understand that there societally I've had advantages that other people wouldn't have had. There's no doubt about that, but it is very intersectional in a true sense. And any one particular person's situation is going to be very different, but notwithstanding all that stuff, it doesn't mean that people don't have relevant opinions, particularly in the academic setting. We all understand that women are underrepresented in many academic circles, but that doesn't mean that people who are in a position shouldn't have a place at the table. I mean, that makes no sense. Otherwise, what what would we do as as who we are right now? Would we stop producing research? Would yeah, we just, uh, yeah. you know? I, I want an equal world, um, but I also want to, um, in my opinion, if I feel it's going to help. Yeah. So I want to switch the the focus a little bit because I want to finish off with some some positives if we can. Uh, we've talked a lot about the potential risks of all this, but do, do you think there can be some opportunities that will come out of this, either for the way we live or for business, for society, for health, whatever it happens to be? Start with um, you, Grant. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we've identified that uh, that there can be some more flexibility in working and uh, the virtual workplace that's had promise for so long and never eventuated uh, can happen. I think that um, that can happen in, in uh, secondary education as well. And I think it's becoming obvious that that may suit uh, things. I think this uh, enforced localism has helped people understand uh, more about the things that are important to them. I think this has been a time where for many, and I absolutely acknowledge this hasn't been for all, but there's been a time where they've been able to stay in their family bubble and uh, and there's been benefits to that. I think it gives us a reset point on environmental health in particular mm. uh, and how we travel globally and what that means. Uh, I'm not too worried if the borders remain relatively shut in New Zealand and we um, stay in this country rather than deciding that the only way you can have a good time is to go um, to X, Y, and Z and spend you know, tens of thousands of dollars on these overseas trips. So yeah. I find that, I find that um, astonishing, really, that that's 
most people's idea of fun, and I think this may reset that. And I think those are all nothing but good things. Yeah. So, so, but it, like everything, it'll be what we make of it. Um, if we rush back to normal, uh, I mean, for me, I'm again. This is from the privileged position I'm in, but uh, I've been exercising every morning, and I've had so much trouble doing that for for the last decade. But I've had the space to do that. So allowed me yeah. to think um and do it with my uh teenage children and had a great time what, what about you simon do you see any um opportunities that that you can see arising from this uh yeah well like grant said i think it's um given us all an opportunity to sort of declutter a bit from some of the trappings of life and uh certainly i think it's sort of killed killed our consumerist instinct instincts a bit uh yeah over the last four weeks and realized that do i really need to buy all that extra stuff that <laughs> i'd like to go back to sunday closing actually <laughs> <laughs> i remember that from when i was young and i think it was great you can't do anything on that day but you know do, do other things apart from buy yeah yeah absolutely and um and yeah it sort of got me back into the garden and um uh that's been a positive eating more sort of locally produced food and um getting the kids out on their bikes um that's been the only sort of source of leisure activity and they've been able to go all over the road without uh being fearing uh, being knocked off so yeah, I think we've seen air pollution levels fall precipitously um, because the level of traffic's uh, reduced. So, yeah, and I've learned a, a whole lot more about how to do video conferencing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you're saying it wasn't such a bad thing to go to level four, Si. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear yeah. on the level four, I, I actually initially was, um, because I thought the data were, Simon and I have different views on this, and just to show we don't agree on everything, um, I felt the data of that were um, highly uncertain and uh, I thought that was actually a prudent approach at that point mm. but um, I think data were coming through quickly and it, things are changing still rapidly and the answer in science is to keep changing your mind as new data come to think that is actually what science is science isn't making up your mind on one thing and then following it no matter what it's constantly changing your mind as new data come it's yeah. not backtracking that's that's the scientific process so i think we, we differ there and that's fine uh and that's just you know that's healthy so a scenario what would you see happening in the next few days weeks and months with our response to this just in, in layperson's terms because i know that everyone hasn't read through the entire uh, entirety of your plan well, I think we should go back to work, go back to school, um, <coughs> that we need to look at the areas where coronavirus has been most devastating, such as in rest homes and when it spreads through hospitals. So I think extra precautions there. But I think for me, a priority here is minimizing the damage from the lockdown and uh, getting being cautious but getting business back on its feet and not destroying livelihoods that have taken years to build up 
Mm. My, my view is similar. I guess I would describe it as a careful mitigation strategy. Um, my view is that we have a virus that is now endemic worldwide. So it's, it's not like it's going to be stamped out in the world. Uh, it may somehow be possible if you stayed locked down enough in New Zealand to eradicate it, but the trade-off for that would be unacceptable uh, losses in other areas, including uh, health. And so I think even if we close the borders, there's still ship's crew and freight pilots and stuff coming in. It's inevitable that even if we were successful in eradicating it, then it would reappear. Um, yeah. So there's going to be a strategy of flattening this curve, which means that people will still get COVID-19 um, and there will be clusters and that needs to be monitored very carefully. And I think um, developing our capability as a country in that part of the health sector of uh, contact tracing and uh, quarantining and managing outbreaks, uh, the old-fashioned public health, as someone would describe it, um, could develop better. And that would be a good outcome from here. But mitigation, not suppression or elimination, is the strategy. And those might just seem like uh, words, but they make a massive difference to um, how we might uh, go forward and consider what would mm -hmm. happen in society. And, and that may be happening already, right? We can't say that because we've been locked down at this point that people still haven't been transmitting it and we don't have a, a huge number of people who have caught it and have been asymptomatic and have recovered or who have had mild, you know, cold-like symptoms. Um, you know, I, I had a cold early on in the lockdown, and so I quarantined myself for two weeks. So I, I've actually been in lockdown longer than the lockdown. Um, but I, I don't know. I just don't know whether it was COVID or not. And I think there'd be a lot of people in that boat. So we, we may already, I'm just throwing it out there, I don't know, but we may already be reaching some sort of... Um, some level of herd immunity, I guess, if that can in fact be achieved. Uh, I, I don't know what you guys think about reactivation or reinfection. Um, do you have any final sort of comments on that? Well, I think um, there's some evidence that immunity to coronaviruses generally only lasts a couple of years or so, but um, and, and feature of coronaviruses is they mutate um, rapidly. Um, but Yes, I think there's, if you look at surveys, for example, there's one study done in Germany, uh, I think it was about 2% of a town were PCR test positive, but about 30% had evidence of immunity. I think it was 15, I, 15, sorry. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so, so I think the virus is probably much more widespread than we would be led to believe by just looking at PCR positive cases. Right. Um, if you think about what happened in China, knowing now that it's not just dramatic disease, there's a lot of asymptomatic cases. Uh, before the virus was discovered, the it was likely that there was a lot of transmission before these uh, dramatic lockdowns were enacted. Um, and you know, certainly there's been some anecdotal stories about bad flus circulating in uh, January, December last year. Yeah, and, so, and, and well, I was sick enough, Simon, as you think, as you know, that uh, I had to self-isolate, but I was it developed into a, uh, into a lung infection um, such that I actually had to wake up and, and, and sit on my bed through the early hours of the night so I could actually breathe. 
uh, rang the health line a couple of times in my GP and they told me to drink more fluids. So, you know, that's, who knows what that was. Yeah. yeah. There simply wasn't the testing, was there? No. Well, thanks for, for being with me this morning, guys. I, I really appreciate it because I wanted to understand more about this, um, you know, just for myself, but also I know a lot of my community are wanting to know just more about this from different perspectives so that we can move forward more effectively. I think it's really important that we have these debates in the public, even though I've been shouted down a little bit for, for suggesting that as well. Um, one thing I guess I'd like to finish on is that it, it wasn't that we thought this might occur. I think we'd all agree that we knew that there was going to be another pandemic because we've seen them before. They're going to occur again. And it's likely that we'll see another coronavirus pandemic in the coming years, right? We've seen it with SARS. We've seen it with MERS. You know, we have influenza pandemics periodically. So if nothing else, I think this debate really helps us to be better prepared psychologically, psychosocially, um, and in a health and economic sense for, for the future. Yeah, agree. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think this issue is going to go away. <laughs> no. Whether it's this virus that continues for months or years, or whether it's another virus that uh, gets discovered and um, and there's a you know similar um, scenario. I think we need to learn all we can from uh, you know part of what made me a little bit cynical about the response to this virus was learning from the swine flu um, scenario, which was, you know, there was all sorts of devastation forecast and the reality was very, very different. So um, I think we, we definitely do need to take some lessons from history here. Yeah, if I, one thing I'd just like to finish with Cliff is, um, I was having trouble sleeping last night. I've been sort of worried about, you know, these things. And, and so I ended up listening to a podcast around um, Carl Sagan, the physicist. And when they made the uh, sort of golden record, they put on Voyager and sent it out into outer space. Uh, but they talked a lot about the fragility of humanity. And there's a famous line where it goes, well, we're a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck and our mm. place on the universe. And I think um, some humility as a species of our acknowledgement of our fragility that we just wish this, if we wish this virus away enough with lockdowns in the media, um, then it will go away. Um, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's not going to. Um, ideally, we'd live in a world where this and these viruses didn't exist and they weren't uh, lethal on occasions. Um, yeah, we don't live in that world and um, it's worth thinking about that yeah so that we can be better prepared yeah yeah well thank you guys professor grant schofield dr simon thornley you guys are, are awesome you're my mates but i don't agree with you on everything but i think it's important <laughs> that we get these debates and discussions out there um, I'd love to have you guys back on again at some stage if more evidence comes to light. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions coming through as well. Um, so I really appreciate your time. I know you're both super busy, particularly at the moment. So uh, like I say, thank, thank you so much. Thanks, Cliff. Thanks, Cliff. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. 
To support the podcast and receive member-only benefits along with free articles, go to cliffharvey.com. Subscribe to the podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.